get to 1 Corinthians 6 here. You may or may not have heard this last couple of weeks, there's been some things going on in Canada. On November 29th of last year, 2021, the House of Commons in Canada passed Bill C-4 by unanimous vote. And the bill was enacted into law, took effect on January 8th of this year, just a few days ago. The new law amends the Canadian Criminal Code to criminalize conversion therapy. Conversion therapy has been broadly applied to um, anyone, to, to any effort to try to help somebody not fall into a homosexual, transgender, non-binary, whatever you want to add to it, lifestyle. So to turn somebody from that lifestyle has been labeled conversion therapy. Canadian law now defines or defines conversion therapy, or lumped it in rather, with laws regarding human trafficking and prostitution. They just added the words conversion therapy, and then they defined it later in the law, and this is how the law reads and defines conversion therapy as, quote, a practice, treatment, or service designed to, A, change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, B, change a person's identity, gender, to cisgender, and if you're not familiar with that term, you're not alone, I had to look it up too, and it means to identify with the gender with which you were born. D, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to that person at birth. D, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. E, repress a person's gender identity or F, Repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to that person at birth, end quote. So all of that says, if you do anything to try to discourage or encourage somebody to practice heterosexuality, you're breaking the law in Canada. This means that any pastor... Any youth pastor, any church leader, anybody in church cannot tell someone who is practicing homosexuality, transgenderism, a man who wears women's clothes to church, or anything like that, that it is a sin and they need to repent. You'd be breaking the law. If you counsel that person that participating in those activities is a violation of Scripture, then you are violating Canadian law. If you tell somebody they need to live according to the gender that God created them to be, you'd be breaking Canadian law. The penalty for violating the law, quote, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, as defined above, including providing conversion therapy to that other person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. It goes on to say, if you tell someone about conversion therapy, you can go to jail for two years. The law further goes on to say, if you counsel somebody on how to convert to homosexuality, or how to convert to transgenderism, or how to make that easier for them, you are perfectly within the law. This law further, or this law is so broad that it includes even preaching passages in the Bible that condemn homosexuality. Today, pastors all over Canada And many of us here in the U.S. are preaching on the subject of biblical sexuality. We are joining together in solidarity to our brothers in Canada who are, at this moment, could be facing jail for the messages that they're preaching. Canada could be the first country in North America that is putting pastors in prison for preaching the Word of God. 
I want to be clear from the outset, there's no room in the church for hating those who are slaves to sin. Contrary to ignorant teaching of some pastors and churches like those at Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas, God does not hate homosexuals. Or any other person who's enslaved to sin. He does not approve of the sin. They will stand accountable for their sin. God will judge their sin if they do not repent, but God loves sinners. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus came to free those who are enslaved to sin. That's good news for all of us. There's no room for hatred for those who are engaged in sin, no matter how reprehensible we find it. We will never reach the lost by hating them. We will reach the lost by loving them and showing them Christ. Sin is repulsive. It's offensive to God. It's harmful to the human race, and it's damning to the individual. Therefore, we need to make every effort to show them Christ. Because that's their only hope. We can never overlook the sin and pretend like it doesn't exist. That's no benefit either. We live in a society that has rejected the idea that there's anything Remotely connected to supreme authority. We live in a a world where people resent teachers and employers and parents and politicians and pastors that try to tell people right from wrong. We try to tell people how they should live, think, or act. They immediately rebel. They have denied the notion that God has a right to commend, command, or condemn them. They become convinced that there's no such thing as an absolute moral standard. What's right for you may not be right for me. What's right for me may not be right for somebody else. They reject the idea of absolutes unless those absolutes are absolutely agreeable to them. For instance, many in our society would say there is nothing wrong for an adult man to dress up, act like, and live like a teenage girl. But those same people would say it is absolutely wrong for an adult male to dress up, act like, and live like a Civil War Confederate soldier. Many people today would say that no one has a right to establish or impose a moral standard on anyone. Not a government, not a school, not parents, and certainly not the church. Absence of supreme authority has left individuals to decide for themselves what they believe to be right and wrong. This results in, not surprising, every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. God judged his his nation for doing that very thing. You can just read the book of Judges. And it ends with that phrase... And every man did that which is right in his own eyes. This leaves adults, teenagers, and even children deciding for themselves what is morally right and wrong. No one has a right to question or otherwise try to change their decision. Every person's choice, they would say, is just as viable as any other person's choice, unless, of course, your choice is to disagree with their choice. If your choice is to disagree with their choice, then your choice is wrong. If you accept their choice, then your choice is right. This radical individualism has desensitized our society to the downward 
spiral that we're currently on. Society has become the proverbial frog in the pot. Frog swims around in the water, not realizing that it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter and starting to boil. And before long, they're going to be cooked. Our society has been swimming around in the waters, oblivious to the fact that it's getting hotter and hotter and we're about to be cooked. Without the absolute authority of God's Word, as the beacon of right and wrong, society will continue down the slippery slope, slide into an abyss void of moral standards. Unfortunately, we've even seen churches around the world capitulate to society's demands. Stop preaching the truth of God's Word so as not to offend anybody. They lack any standard that the Bible decrees. Many churches have stopped teaching the Scripture and rather embracing society's definition of morality. And for some churches, it's even become a badge of honor. You can... Drive by a church sign not two miles from here that celebrates the fact that they embrace the homosexual community. For many Christians, this embracing of sexual sin has become like a stain on your carpet. Initially, you see it and you're aghast and you think, I gotta get rid of that stain, but after you've seen it 14 days in a row, you don't even recognize it anymore and it just becomes part of the pattern. As human behavior declines, the community at large adjusts to the standards to accommodate it. The conduct that once was considered reprehensible is, becomes acceptable and even in many cases, uh, uh, cases admirable. But don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he'll also reap. This doesn't happen without a cost. And every society that's ever embraced the lack of morality, that has dismissed the righteous standard of God, has experienced the judgment of God. In order to embrace what the world is, our society is calling us to embrace, requires an intentional ignoring of God's Word. It requires a redefining of what God calls sin or or else dismissing sin completely. It requires people to call what God calls evil good and to call what God calls good evil. For the Christian, there can be no such shifts. For the Christian, there is no neutral position. You cannot turn a blind eye to what society is claiming to be normal and acceptable. can't accept, affirm, condone, or endorse that which God calls sin. Choosing not to take a position, by the way, is a, is taking a position. And to choose to not take a position is to take the position in opposition to God. Make no mistake about it, society has not merely rejected God's moral standards, they've rejected God. They have said, we don't want God, we want our own desires. Our own desires trump anything God says or wants. Robert Audi, professor of philosophy at the University of Nebraska, echoes the feelings of many when he says that society is about, quote, an obligation not to advocate or support any law or public policy that restricts human conduct unless one has and is willing to offer adequate secular reason for its advocacy or support, end quote. In other words, the professor is saying that secular reasoning is the superior authority in a society. It's superior to biblical or theistic reasoning. In a similar statement, Stanford law professor Kathleen Sullivan wrote an article titled Religion and the Liberal 
and liberal democracy, where she said, quote, the correct baseline theory is not unfettered religious, uh, I'm sorry, the correct baseline theory is not unfettered religious liberty, but rather religious liberty insofar as it is consistent with the establishment of the secular moral order, end quote. In other words, religion is fine as long as it agrees with society. But where society disagrees with the Bible, then the Bible must be interpreted by society, not the other way around. He would say the Bible is never to tell people what is acceptable and not acceptable. Society determines what the Bible, what in the Bible is acceptable and unacceptable. Secularism has declared war on the Word of God any place it speaks of absolute truth. Any place it speaks of absolute moral standards or righteousness. And probably the biggest casualty in this secular jihad against Scripture is in the area of human sexuality. Vividly seen in the law that was passed in Canada you can bet will be floated here in America before long. Secularism is intent on erasing the biblical standard that restricts man's sinful desires, especially when he speaks of sex and sexuality. You must understand what's at stake here. This is much more than just an individual's sexual preference. We're talking about society's moral freefall and the divine consequences that come with it. Let us never forget what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah when they abandoned God's standard. And every man did that which is right in his own eyes. At stake are the very souls of those who are determined to live out the desires of their flesh. As Christians, God has told us that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We therefore have a responsibility of the world that we live in to point them to Jesus Christ, to point them to righteousness, to point them to the, the one person who can change their life, who can forgive their sin. It's crucial that Christians step out of the safety of their own personal spiritual compound where the only people allowed in are their own family and those whom they invite behind the wall and get out into the world and be the light and salt of this earth. It does us no good to keep our light shining behind a wall that no one else can see. We are not to be of the world, but we are certainly to be influencing the world. Our world needs Christians with a heart, like the Puritan preacher Richard Baxter, who said that we must preach to people as a dying man to dying men. In other words, Baxter would say, we only have a limited time to give the gospel to people who are dying. The gospel message needs Christians to love people enough to interact with them, to show them compassion and tell them what they desperately need to hear. Regardless of the consequences, regardless of society's disdain for the truth, we must be unapologetic, uncompromising in our commitment to biblical fidelity, and at the same time we are not to be unloving and unkind. We must show them the love of God by showing them the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In these verses, specifically verses 9 through 11, Paul addresses the gap between the Christian's position as representatives of the gospel and their present practice in the world in which they lived, this morally bankrupt society of Corinth. And Paul speaks out first of the terrible price of unrighteousness. In verses 9 and 10 he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, or idolaters rather, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He starts out with, do you not know? So the way we would say it is, you ought to know by now. In fact, he uses that phrase six times in this chapter. Or do you not know? Or do you not know? You should know this by now. The problem in Corinth was that Christians were being influenced by the sexual debauchery that was running rampant in the city. And they were not only influenced by it, some of them were actually engaging in it, or at least accepting of it, as if it was part of the normal fabric of society. That was perfectly fine. Now in the city of Corinth, if you ever get to go there in Greece, it's fascinating to walk through the old ancient Corinth and see the ruins there, but what's very fascinating is right behind the city is this giant mountain, this big monolith hill and on the top of it is a temple to Aphrodite and every night during Corinth's heyday a thousand temple prostitutes would make their way down that road into the city of Corinth to ply their trade and it was rampant within the city sexual immorality as a form of worship was common It's probably why Paul addresses it here. Why he addresses it first in this list. Because it was so common. Paul wants them to know, he wants us to know, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a price to pay. It's It's not just live however you want to live and it doesn't matter in the end. That's part of the philosophy that's driving the immorality today where it really doesn't matter what you believe. And people have convinced themselves of that. Either there is no truth or it really doesn't matter because everybody's eventually going to go to heaven anyway. And shame on those preachers and those professors and those theologians who have continued to teach this error that everybody will eventually be saved, or you just go to hell for a little while, and then eventually you can get out and go to heaven. Paul says here in no uncertain terms that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those whose lifestyle is characterized by the sins on this list, and others that are not on this list, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not that they can participate it for a little while and then punish for a little while and then go to heaven. We're talking about eternal damnation here. We'll be judged according to their works, specifically according to the list that Paul gives us. We all need to remember that one day everybody's going to stand before God. Those who know Christ will stand before God and give an account for what we did with our salvation, how we lived out our faith, and then at the end there will be a a judgment called the great white throne where every unbeliever will be judged according to their works. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 13, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from these things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Revelation 21, verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving, the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I want you to understand it's not the specific sins on this list, but specific sins that characterize a person's lifestyle. Shows they're unrighteous. 
They've never been covered by the righteousness of Christ. They've never been transformed by the Holy Spirit. and They remain in slaves to their sin. They've been unwilling to repent, trust Christ. Like the rich young man who came to Jesus and wanted to be a follower, and Jesus said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. The man walks away sad because he had great wealth that he didn't want to part with. Those who are grabbing onto their sinful lifestyles and are unwilling to let it go so that they can repent and be made righteous. Their life is characterized by slavery to the sins on these lists. Show that they've never been saved. They won't, in, they won't let go of their sin. And their hands are filled with their sin and they're unable to embrace Christ. And as a result, they remain condemned. Being in the category of the unrighteous is not just to miss heaven. As bad as that would be, it's much worse than that. To miss heaven is to be condemned to an eternal hell. A lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Sin is so reprehensible to God that the righteous judgment for that is eternal punishment. And while that might not sit well with you or people you know, and they might not agree with that assessment, it's because they don't think sin is as bad as it really is. But sin is so evil that God has decreed that that sin is worthy of eternal damnation. We're all known by our fruit. The righteous produce fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The unrighteous are also known by their fruit. That, that's the list in verses 9 and 10. And Paul's speaking about sexual sin here because of the strong draw that it has always had on the human condition. It doesn't take you long reading, starting in Genesis and reading through your Bible to see that sexual sin has enslaved many people multiple times. And Paul addresses this list, calling them fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate homosexuals. Idolatry is no doubt on the list in this midst of clear sexual sins because at the time that Paul is writing this, and specifically in Corinth, idolatry was often associated with sexual immorality, temple prostitution. Homosexual prostitution. All couched in the idea of worship. That this is the way that you worship. You and you pay for this prostitute. It was idolatry, but wrapped up in sexual immorality. When a person's lifestyle is characterized by one of these sins, he or she gives evidence that they've never been transformed by the Work of Christ. Fornicators. That's a term used for anybody that's in sexual sin outside of the bonds of marriage. So any single person that's engaging in sexual sin, whether that's having sex with another person, whether that's engaging in pornography, or anything else associated with that, that is... A, a term used for unmarried people and sexual sin. Adulterers would be married people in sexual sin. Effeminate and homosexuals are two sides of the same sin. The effeminate would be the passive person in the homosexual relationship. Homosexual would be more the dominant person in the homosexual relationship. Now, our society has redefined all these terms, but the terms are broad enough to include anybody who engages in 
a gay relationship, a lesbian relationship, a bisexual relationship, a non-binary, and all the other terminology that you can throw in there. God has made no bones about it. He's made it very clear. Those who are characterized by this will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says it twice. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He starts with that. Do not be deceived. Don't be fooled into thinking that it's okay. Don't be fooled into thinking that this is just a choice. This is just another expression of love. It does not matter how society celebrates it. It doesn't matter how many television shows feature homosexuality as normal, as acceptable. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He, he bookends the list. Don't you know they won't inherit the God, uh, the kingdom of God? He gives a list and says it again. They will not inherit the kingdom of God, driving home the point. This is how serious this is. Don't be deceived. Folks, we live in a society that is intent on changing the way you think about sin. Everything on the media is intended to change the way you think. You already know this just from politics. You know that the media is trying to influence the way that you vote. You already know that. Don't be fooled. They're also trying to tell you what is right and what is wrong morally. You can watch television shows that that make you laugh at what the Bible calls sin. And it's subtly deceiving you to thinking it's okay or it's not so bad. The second half of the list, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers, mainly speak of greed. The thieves that want something, they covet things, they, they get drunk because they're selfish and want to feel a certain way. The revilers, they don't like what other people say, they, they disagree with them, and the swindlers who want to rob from people, steal from people. It's all in the same broad category of greedy people. But both lists are self-centered selfishness. It's all to satisfy self. It's what my flesh desires at the moment. It's what my spirit desires at the moment. That's what they focus on, and that's what they embrace. That's what characterizes their lifestyle. That's what shows that they're not believers. I want you to understand that the things on this list are not the unpardonable sins. That if you have participated in one or more of these sins, that there's no hope for you. That's not the intent. The point is, if this is what is characteristic of your life, then you're showing that you're not a believer. Salvation requires repentance, and repentance requires a turning away from sin. That means no true Christian will remain practicing homosexuals or identify as non-binary or transgender or any other sexual perversion. I've met a number of people who have claimed to be believers, but they're participating in what God has already listed here as sin that shows a person's not going to the, go to heaven unless they repent. There's no such thing as a genuine Christian who is also a practicing homosexual and sees nothing wrong with it. Now to be clear, there are Christians who are struggling with sin. Who are trying to come out of a lifestyle that is sinful. Just the same way that most, that many heterosexual men struggle with pornography.
genuine believer struggles with temptation and may stumble and fall, but they can't embrace the sin as being acceptable. The good news is, as serious as those things are, and as much as they've had a hold on people and enslaved them to sin, they are not unpardonable and God is able to to transform that person's soul. That brings us to verse 11, the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Oh, that's a a great verse. Paul's just given this list of these things that are condemning. If this characterizes your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, such were some of you, but you've been changed. God is able to take those who are in that lifestyle that has shown that they are not believers, that they are condemned to an eternity without Christ, and has changed their hearts. Maybe your lifestyle wasn't characterized by this level of sin. Maybe your lifestyle was... Like mine, when I got saved at seven years old, I didn't have a whole lot to repent of. I wasn't beating my wife. I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't selling pot to the kindergartners. And I thank God that I didn't participate in my lifestyle. I wasn't entrapped by these things. But even if your lifestyle currently is, there is hope for you. And that hope is Jesus Christ. Such were some of you. They were held in the grip of sexual immorality, even though they didn't see it as immoral. They were slaves to sin and slaves to their own flesh, but God in His grace, His compassion opened up their eyes and freed them. Took them from the bondage Remove their sin and clothe them in His righteousness. And they were made new creatures in Christ Jesus. Which is the story of every one of us who's a believer. Maybe your sin isn't on this list, but it was still condemning. It was still damning you to an eternity without Christ. And God in His grace reached in and grabbed your heart and removed your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. And opened up your eyes so that you could see and unstopped your ears so that you could hear and you could believe and be made a new creature in Christ Jesus. There's no sin too hard, too difficult for God to save somebody from. No sin too grievous for Him to forgive. Paul describes the transformation in Titus chapter 3. Verses 3 through 7. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul saying, listen, you you weren't transformed because of anything within yourself. It was the goodness of God. It was the kindness of God that did it. He transforms hearts. He changes lives. He did it through the washing of the Word. Renewing of the Holy Spirit. God is able to transform all who call upon Him. That you were washed... Sin makes us dirty. 
If you confess your sin, He's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Sin makes us filthy. But God washes us through His Word. Cleanses our soul. Makes us whiter than snow. Not only were you washed, but you were sanctified. That means we're set apart. It literally means set apart to be holy. From slaves to sin to slaves to holiness. God has set us apart for His use. His holy use. And then... You were justified. This is a legal declaration that our sin has been forgiven. Simple way to remember what justified means, it means just as if I'd never sinned. God takes the ledger that has all of our sin on it and He stamps it paid in full. The the books are now justified. They balance out. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. This is the work of Christ. This is why He came to this earth. Why He died on the cross. For the wickedness, for the list here in 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 9 and 10. And lists like that, that's why Jesus died was to pay for those kinds of sins. To wash people. To justify them, to sanctify them. Never forget the power of Jesus Christ to change lives. Folks, the power is not in our ability to present a persuasive speech. The power is in the Spirit of God. And as we proclaim the truth of His Word to a lost and dying world, God takes that Word and implants it in the hearts of those whom He chooses. Changes their hearts. Power is in the blood of Jesus Christ. We are to be witnesses of God's grace. And mercy and love and transforming power. One of the problems of being a Christian for a long period of time is forgetting the transforming power of Jesus Christ. It's forgetting where God took you from and where He's taken you to. It's forgetting that you once were lost, but now you're found. It's forgetting that you once were blind, but now you see. It's forgetting that you were lost. Jesus Christ came and found you. Picked you up. Carried you to the cross. We are to be witnesses of that. The moral compass of this world is broken. The moral standard of this world is going to grow more and more corrupt. It's the way it has to be. Oh, it's possible that God might grant repentance to the world and delay His coming, but it doesn't appear that way. Before the Lord returns, the world's going to get more and more corrupt. And we're not just to throw our hands up and say, oh well, it doesn't matter. We are still witnesses. We're still to share the gospel with a lost and dying world all around us. And not turn a blind eye to the blatant sin that clearly separates somebody from God. 
to compassionately share with them. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. God's moral standard has never changed. God's moral standard does not change because the majority of people in the world don't like it. While the world continues to embrace sin and to normalize it and glamorize it and outlaw the truth, we are still the light of the world. And we are still the salt of the earth. And it's crucial that we do our jobs. That we shine. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The day may come here in the U.S. It's already come in Canada. We're... Authorities may fine or imprison pastors and church leaders for speaking the truth that's found in God's Word. We should not be surprised when it happens. But that can't silence us. We still speak the truth and speak it in love. can't allow the blatant disregard for God's Word change what we do as believers. We must compassionately and confidently point those who are enslaved to sin to the freedom that's only found in Christ. And let us remember to pray for one another that we'll be bold Courageous. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Canada. Just like the homosexual community targets bakeries and photographers whom they know will not make a cake for a gay wedding or photograph a gay wedding. Just like those people are targeted and sued in America, you can guarantee that today... There are people in churches waiting to hear what the preacher says so they can complain, file lawsuits. Still doesn't stop us from preaching the truth. In God's word, we need to proclaim it. Canada may well be the first country in North America to suffer persecution for preaching the truth, but they certainly won't be the last. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our hearts go out to our brothers in Canada, fellow pastors there, Father, who are today preaching the truth of your word. Father, those brothers that are preaching all over the country today, this and similar passages. Father, may we stand firm on your word. May our security be found in our relationship to you and not in the things that the world offers. Father, may we recognize that we are in a spiritual war, that our battle is not really with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. Father, may we recognize that the battle in Canada is not with flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness. Father, we would pray for a repeal of the law. We pray that you would allow us to continue to proclaim the truth of your word until you come. Without persecution. But Father, if that's not the plan, may we be found faithful anyway. Father, may we be faithful, not just in defiance, but faithful to proclaim the truth because it is what saves lives. 
Father, let us proclaim the truth because we love people. Let us proclaim the truth not because we want to thumb our nose at the government, but because it's the truth of your word that changes sinners into saints. Father, use us. Help us to shine. Help us to be the salt of this earth and the light of this world. Seeing the moral decay. Seeing a country that started with some Christian principles, abandoned them. Race wickedness. Father, that should not surprise us. We've seen your chosen people Israel do the same thing over and over again. Father, may we take the opportunity that we have. Breath that we still have, may we use it to proclaim the truth. The time that we have left, Father, may we proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. Father, we all know someone who needs Christ. May we proclaim the truth. Father, not for the motive of trying to reverse the moral decay, but Father, because we love people and we don't want to see them die and go to hell. Father, thank you that you loved us and saved us. Your Spirit opened up our eyes to truth. We could come to saving faith. Father, you know every heart in this room and it's possible, even probable, there's someone here that doesn't know Christ. Father, I pray that your Spirit would draw them to repentance today. Father, it's probable that there's people in our congregation right now that are struggling with sexual sin. Be it homosexuality, be it pornography, be it some other form. Father, would you change hearts? Open their eyes to the sinfulness of sin. They remember the terrible cost. Father, may they embrace your grace turn from their sin and turn fully to you. Father, change hearts. Change minds. So that you might be glorified. Lives might be changed. That our light might shine brighter and brighter. Pray these things in Jesus' precious name.